invite you to turn to John chapter 20 with me, Bibles or bulletins, uh, as you have before you. Uh, we come this morning to the end of our reflections together over the course now, actually as it's been spread out of more than a couple of years on the Gospel of John. There's, of course, after John chapter 20, an epilogue in John chapter 21, but I know that over the course of years here, I have preached on that before, and I leave it to you. Uh, for your own reading and consideration. Uh, today, in our text, we're brought once again into a room where the disciples have gathered, and it is eight days later, uh, eight days later, that is, from the last text that we read, eight days after Easter. And by uh, by the way you do collective counting of days, that is counting the first Sunday and counting the, the next Sunday, uh, it's the next Sunday evening. Okay, so it's the next Sunday evening. The disciples are once again gathered together. So here this morning, the inspired word of God. It is always profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that we might be equipped as the people of God for every good work. And so as I read it for us this morning, as I preach it for us this morning, may the Lord grant to us not only the gift of being able to hear this morning, to actually listen and pay attention to it, but the gift of being able to believe that which is written and authored by the Lord for us, his people. This is the word of God. I'll start at 24 and read to the end of the chapter. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called a twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hand in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Lord, it is unspeakable that you have given to us life in the name of your Son, our Lord. Thank you for the gifts, for your graciousness towards us, for the gift of faith, for the gift of of belief in our lives, and thank you for this word. And now we pray that you would minister it to us, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. How would you like to be 
the one who missed it. The one who missed it, who missed the first appearance of the Lord to his disciples after the resurrection. None of us. None of us likes to miss a big event. Whatever it is, whatever big event you can think of, we hate to miss it. And this first appearance of the Lord after the resurrection was a big one. But Thomas wasn't there. Thomas wasn't there. And of course, we don't know why he wasn't there. You know, you think, what are the reasons why Thomas wasn't there that first night? Was he sick? Was he late? Did he get delayed along the way somewhere? Did he get caught up in a conversation? And when he got there, they said to him, we've seen the Lord, and he had missed it. Or is it, is it something else? Perhaps he had been discouraged. Or maybe he considered even, you know, we thought Jesus was the one, but with his death, maybe he's not. And maybe he had started a little bit of a separation from those. We don't know. We don't know why he missed that first appearance of our Lord. But I hope all of us can say, and I know I can say, thank God he missed it. Thank God he missed it. I, I would like to be able to say to him, Thomas, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry that everyone else was there, and for whatever reason, you weren't on that first Easter evening. But thank God that you weren't there, because now we have this story and this event. J.C. Ryle, I think, rightly says of it, the Holy Spirit knew that we were going to need this. Whatever the orchestration was in the providence of God that kept Thomas from that first meeting, the Holy Spirit, in then recording it through the Apostle John, knew that this was going to be needed for the comfort and for the hope of all believers. Thomas was skeptical. Now, I don't know if we can go so far as to say that Thomas was a skeptic, in general, but at least we can say with respect to the resurrection, he was skeptical. The men and the women that he had been with for three years now, for three years now, they had given their testimony, and the testimony that they gave was, we have seen the Lord. He has appeared to us. And you can imagine you can imagine the descriptions that existed, the descriptions that came from Mary and from the other women as well, from Peter and John, uh, from, from Cleopas and the other disciple. The Gospel of Luke, of course, records that on that first day, uh, Cleopas and the other disciple were on the road to Emmaus and Jesus appeared to them and explained to them how and why those things had to take place. And he was revealed to them in the breaking of the bread at that moment. And then, of course, the Lord had appeared to all of them on that first evening. And they probably said this to Thomas. Thomas, not only did he appear to us, not only did he show to us the scars, the wounds that you are asking to see, but not only that, he spoke to us, Thomas, and there's one more thing. There's one more thing that he did, Thomas. Gospel of Luke, 
He ate fish with us. Thomas, he did all of this with all of us. But for Thomas, hearing was not enough. Hearing about it from these people whom he knew, whom he loved, was not enough. He was skeptical. For him, seeing would be believing. But sometimes your eyes can deceive you, even in a world where deep fakes weren't available, as they are now. Sometimes your eyes can deceive you. And so Thomas says, it's not only that I want to see him. I want more than that. I want to touch him. I want to put my fingers here. I want to put my hands here. Touching and seeing, for Thomas would be believing. He was skeptical. He was unsure. He was unconvinced because of the sheer unbelievability of what they were saying to him. He was not persuaded by their words. He had doubts about it. He did not believe what they were saying. Their conviction, the conviction with which they were saying to him, Thomas, we have seen the Lord, was met by his incredulity at it. He resists. Perhaps it was some kind of intellectual pride. Perhaps it was stubbornness. Perhaps it was hard-headedness. Perhaps it was just that there was no way for him to conceive that they had actually seen what they said they saw. Now, let's be clear. Thomas is not being held up to us as some kind of an example. A lot of people are proud of their skepticism. They think it makes them intellectually honest, intellectually superior, perhaps, to other people to be skeptical about things. Thomas is not being held up as an example. Thomas is not here saying, well, be like Thomas, and that would be a good thing. His skepticism isn't good, but what it is, is real. It's not good, but it's real. And that's what makes this episode so universal for us, so relatable for so many of us. We can connect with it. We get it. We get the moment. We get the feeling that's going on inside of Thomas. And, and, and here's just an image that was in my mind as I was reflecting on this. Thomas's doubt is like a flatbed truck, and we can load onto that flatbed truck not only all of the doubts and all of the skepticism that Thomas had, but for a moment, let's load all of ours on there as well. Put all of the doubts you've got, all of the questions you've got, all of the, can I really believe this? Just stick it on that flatbed truck, and let's see what happens with it over the course of this passage. What must he have thought? when he heard the testimony, the testimonies of his friends, right? These weren't strangers who were saying this. This wasn't some itinerant teacher or itinerant preacher who came around and was proclaiming this. These were his friends. These are the people he knew and had been with for so long. And they said this to him. What did he think? Did he think, well, sorry, guys, this is just too good to be true. It's just too good. 
It's impossible to believe. Uh, perhaps, he thought, guys, I hear what you're saying, but perhaps it was some kind of an angelic visitation. After all, angelic visitations have taken place. They took place throughout the Old Testament. They took place in the story of the birth of Christ. Maybe what you guys all saw and experienced was, in fact, an angel and not the risen Lord Jesus Christ. I, who knows? You know, we just, again, finished the book of Samuel. And maybe he had in his mind that perhaps this was some Saul Samuel medium of Endor type of experience where there was, there was the spirit of Jesus that was present there in a way that, you know, obviously in 1 Samuel wasn't good. But nevertheless, maybe that's it. It seems to me, though, that the particular resistance that he is showing is directed at the idea of a fleshly resurrection of the crucified Jesus. The idea that Jesus would have appeared to them in the flesh. He wants and he is demanding tangible proof of a bodily resurrection. That's what I want. I want tangible proof of a bodily resurrection. He is insistent, not on testimony, but on personal, empirical evidence. I want the evidence. I'm not convinced if you've got the evidence and are telling me about the evidence, I want the evidence for myself. Now consider this carefully. Humanly speaking, which is easier? Which is easier? To believe in the bodily resurrection from the dead or not? Which one of those two things is the easier things for humans to do? I said this already, but some might associate this skepticism with intellectual elitism, with an independence of thought. I don't just think what other people think. I don't just go along with the crowd. I'm the guy who stands apart from the crowd. And all the crowd is saying, well, he rose from the dead. And even though they're my friends, I got to see it. And maybe there was some pride thrown in on top of that. And then other people can look at belief and say, well, belief, that's, that's kind of characterized by childishness. Children believe things like this. It's easy to get duped into believing something. You know, I'm honorable because I'm a skeptic. You are dishonorable because you believe in something that's almost impossible to actually believe took place. Here's what I want to submit to you. I want to submit that skepticism is the easy path. It's the easy way. It masquerades as the elite way. It's the easy way. How easy is it for someone to say something and for you to shrug your shoulders and with three words or one of them being a contraction say in response, well, I don't know, maybe, not so sure, that's all it takes. That is all it takes to be a skeptic. You just have to shrug your shoulders. You just have to say a few words. It takes no effort to be a skeptic. Belief is hard. And, parentheses, belief is impossible, just so you realize it. Belief is hard, humanly speaking. Theologically speaking, it's actually impossible for us to do on our own. 
You know, you think about this night, and oftentimes we think about this night from the perspective of Thomas, and that's what I've done thus far as we've talked about it. But I also think about it from the perspective of the disciples. It, it must have been pretty discouraging for them over the course of the week to have been trying to explain this to their friend, their colleague, one of the twelve, and have him keep rejecting it. After all, in the passage just before this, the Sunday night just before this, Jesus effectively gave them that great commission. The commission which was, you know, as I have been sent, so I am sending you out into this world. A message of proclamation going off into the world, receive the Holy Spirit. And they've got this message that, that, that sends them off into the world to tell the world about the resurrected Jesus, but they can't get Thomas to believe the story. When, when you're told, listen, you're going to change the world, you're going to go out into the world, you've got to proclaim this message, it's daunting enough, right? But when, when a guy who has been with you the entire time, who has heard all the words of Jesus, won't believe it, it must make you kind of go, gee, I don't know. It seems like it's going to be pretty tough, maybe even tougher than Jesus said it was going to be because we can't even get Thomas to believe in that. What hope is there for the world? And into that swirling doubt and the skepticism, once again, our Lord appears. And I, I, I don't know if your mind works like this or not, but I can't help but wonder what must have gone on in Thomas's heart and mind at that very moment. At that very moment where Jesus appears, here you go, uh-oh, <laughs> this is different than I thought. Change of course, change of direction. I'd like to change my opinion. I'd like to change my plea with respect to the testimony. And Jesus speaks the words that we long to hear once again, the words that we heard on the first Sunday evening or last week for us. Peace be with you. And in so doing, Peace be with you reveals himself once again to be the Savior who is kind, who is gentle, who's merciful, who is patient, patient even to people like Thomas. J.C. Ryle again says, patient to people, patient to dull and slow believers is our Lord. And so, the Lord of all, the Lord of all heaven and earth, the Lord of all creation, the Lord of all people, the Lord addresses the one. And his eyes settle on Thomas. Again, hard to know the layout of the room. Was he kind of hiding behind the other disciples at this point with his head down. But his eyes find Thomas, whatever the circumstance was, and, and kind of you can imagine, Thomas, I need to talk to you. I need to address you. Put your finger here. Put your hand here. And with those eyes of yours, Thomas, the eyes that were so skeptical about what your brothers and sisters said about me, Look at me, Thomas. The offer from our Lord is directly proportioned to the demands that Thomas made. 
right? The Lord of all heard that, and he responds accordingly. And then there is a rebuke and a command from our Lord as well. It is directed at doubting Thomas. But we should imagine Jesus addressing all of humanity as well with these words. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Now, we don't know. Did Thomas then take his hands and his fingers and place them on the body of our Lord? We, we don't know. Did the Lord grab his hand and put it on? We don't, we don't know that. But what we do know is that in this moment, the doubts and the skepticism and the unbelief melted away. They dissolved at this very moment. They faded, they disappeared, and they were replaced by one of the most magnificent confessions that we have in all of Scripture. The intimate embrace of the Creator of all. When we started this gospel, however long ago it was, and we were in John chapter 1, and that great prologue, from 1 to 14 or 1 to 18, with which John introduces the gospel to us. I described it, and I was borrowing from C.S. Lewis, as the, the, the gospel of John has the ability to expand all of the universe into eternity past and eternity to come and all of the cosmos, but it takes a lasso, throws it around it, and pulls it into us and makes it all personal at the exact same time. And that's exactly where we wrap it up with Thomas in this confession as well. One single, small, unbelieving, skeptical, full of doubt man embraces the creator of all with the words, my Lord and my God. D.A. Carson says it simply, this is what coming to faith looks like. That's what it looks like. How do you become a Christian? How did you become a Christian? How did you become a Christian? Some, something like this. Some journey like this. It may have been a series of steps for you, but some journey that got you to the point where you could make that confession. Not just a declaration of something out there that, that, that Jesus is those things, but he's yours. My Lord and my God. It's personal and it's wholehearted. For with the heart, one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. With the heart, one believes and is justified. With the mouth, one confesses and is saved. It's Romans chapter 10 where you find that. And John gives us Thomas as the final example of that. I've given you examples all along the way. Here's my final one. Thomas, look at him. All of you take a look at the confession, at the journey 
of this man right here. And then, of course, as John brings the book to its concluding statement there in 30 and 31, he expands this confession because the horizon for John is not Thomas. Right? John didn't write this gospel for Thomas. The gospel of John isn't written for Thomas. Thomas is fine. Right? Thomas is believed. Thomas is one of the twelve. He's fine. The gospel is written for those who would read it, for those who would hear this testimony. One by one, what John has done from the beginning and throughout the book is to bring the witnesses forward. He carefully selected them to make his case. In addition to the many others, you could think of the people who were at the wedding in Cana. Think about Nicodemus. You can think about the woman at the well. You can think about Martha and Mary and all of the rest. And to them, John adds his own testimony in the writing of this book. He gives it particularly with respect to the death of our Lord, with the piercing of the side of the Lord. As the side of the Lord was pierced, we read these words in John 19.35. John self-referencing here. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth that you also may believe. To his readers, in a moment of, of, if you will, now looking at the readers and looking at them directly, he says, I am the one who saw it. I'm testifying about this to you, and my testimony is true. I was there. And I'm sharing it with you so that you might believe. Believe what? that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and load into that all the things that we just confessed in our affirmation of faith from the Heidelberg Catechism, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. The gospel started with the testimony of John the Baptist. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Andrew said to his brother Peter, Peter, we have found the Christ. Philip said to Nathanael, we have found him. Nathanael said, you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. From the beginning to the end, the testimony is given. The testimony is confirmed. The testimony is explained as John works his way through it, that Jesus is the eternal word of God, that he gives life to all who will believe that he is the living water, the bread of life, the light of the world, the door, the good shepherd, the resurrection of the, and the life, the way, the truth, and the life, the vine. And the call goes forth. The call goes forth from Jesus, from John, from all the apostles. Do not disbelieve, but believe. D.A. Carson writes this, John's purpose is not academic. He writes in order that men and women may believe certain propositional truth, the truth that the Christ, the Son of God, is Jesus, 
the Jesus whose portrait is drawn in this gospel. But such faith is not an end in itself. It is directed toward the goal of personal, eschatological, that is to say eternal, end time salvation, that by believing you may have life in his name. That is still the purpose of this book today and the heart of the Christian mission. To proclaim it, to tell it, to explain it, to call on people to believe in the Lord. But of course, there's a big difference. There's a big difference between us and John and Thomas and all of the others. We're not witnesses. We're not witnesses. We didn't hear Jesus. We didn't see Jesus. We didn't touch Jesus. We weren't with Jesus. See, to this point in the Gospel of John, Jesus had not yet ascended to his Father. He is ascending, but he has not yet ascended to his Father. And so Thomas, in a sense, got what he wanted and responded accordingly prior to the ascension. Would not the skeptic today be somewhat justified in saying, God of heaven and earth, if you are there, if you are God, if Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, you did it for Thomas, would you do it for me? Would you do it for me? If you did it for him, would you do it for me? Would you give me a glimpse? Would you let me see you? Can't I have some of that solid proof? I'd believe if only you would appear to me. I'll confess that over the course of my life, I've had thoughts like that, questions like that. I feel like my faith would be more secure if I could see I feel like I would pray better if maybe just one time I saw the Lord, I heard the Lord saying, I, I hear your prayers. What do we say to that? What do we say to it, right? Okay, Jesus appeared to Thomas, not to you, not to me. First, we should say John is well aware of the high privilege he and others had of being with Jesus. He doesn't diminish that. He is doing all that he can, and he's writing in the way that he's writing to communicate to us what it was like to be in the presence of Jesus, to see these things. It was a blessing, and he knows it, and he tries to convey it. And Jesus, Jesus anticipated the reality that he wasn't going to be appearing to everyone in the way that he appeared to Thomas. And so we get the line that we have here from our Lord, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. The blessing in particular goes to you, to me. We haven't seen in the way Thomas saw. But finally, we have to consider 
the question of what is the ultimate source of faith and belief. What does it take to get us to believe something? Now, instrumentally, faith is through hearing. That's what Paul tells us in the book of Romans, that faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. That's the, instrument, that's the instrumentality. That's what is used so that you believe. Faith comes not from seeing. Faith comes from hearing, according to Scripture. But there could be something misunderstood here. The misunderstanding could be that if I just heard it, if I just heard it well-reasoned, well-presented, well-argued, that I would be able to believe in and of myself. And yet, that's exactly where the problem is. The reality is, is that no matter what was given to us in terms of touch, in terms of sight, in terms of words themselves, they would all be vain. Why? Because we think in futility. We don't think the way we should think. We think we're reasonable. But as non-believers, we don't think the way we should think. Our hearts have been darkened. And to us, in and of ourselves, in our flesh, the gospel would be foolishness. It would sound like foolishness. And so ultimately, ultimately, the Bible sources belief in God himself. 1 Corinthians 12.3 no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. By the Holy Spirit. At his ascension, the Lord Jesus took his spirit and launched the spirit into the world with the full message of salvation accomplished by the Lord Jesus Christ and said, get it out there. I'm making it effective unto all the world, unto all the peoples of all the world. It is the Spirit of God that makes belief possible. Belief is not lodged in us. You didn't believe because you were wise. You became wise when you believed. And in that way, it's much safer because belief is lodged and put in the hands of the triune God and those are safer hands than ours to be able to hold it so that the result is that as the word goes forth it is the instrumentality of the triune God to convert it is what God uses but it's God who is doing exactly that, and enables every single sheep in the shepherd's fold to, when they hear it, say in response, my Lord and my God. It wouldn't be better if you saw him. It's better when the Spirit is diffused throughout the world and in you and testifies to these things. That's why you believe. That's why thousands believed at Peter's preaching and the other preaching that came afterwards, and thousands didn't believe when Jesus preached. 
because the Spirit of God made the words effective unto the salvation of men so that we would believe. We're the ones who are blessed. And as a result, the verse that is on the front of your bulletin is true. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Though you don't see him, you love him. Though you don't see him now, you believe in him. That's the gift of God. Lord, we thank you for such a gift bestowed upon us, graciously given to us. Let us never take credit for it ourselves. It has been given by you. We rejoice in it. Fill us with joy. Fill us with assurance. Fill us with hope. Fill us with confidence so that we too can proclaim it into the world. Pray this in your name.